This is the Championship Clubs Podcast, the show that shines a light on English rugby's second flight. Join us every fortnight and check us out on the socials at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Welcome to the show. I'm uh, I'm Michael Casey. I'm back in the hot seat. It's been a little while since I've had the pleasure of talking championship and uh, what a show and what a guest we've got in store for you all today. Um, I'll kick off running through the results from uh, week 15 of the championship. Never been good at maths, but I think every game, every game, maybe with the exception of Coventry and London Scottish, saw 50 points scored. So I guess a, a pretty a, a glowing advert for the game in, in many respects. And a lot of those games, despite being high scoring, were competitive enough. Hartbury went away to Nottingham, won 45-31. Doncaster Knights, sadly losing to Goldington Road, 48-25. Amtil, um on the wrong end of a bit of a heavy one, 61-22 defeat to Cornish Pirates. Our Championship Clubs podcast colleague, Ross Hancock, telling me the Pirates were, were scintillating at the weekend. Jersey with a big win over Caldy and Coventry comfortable against London Scottish. Time looking like it's running out for the Exiles at the bottom. Um, producer Ryan, go on then. Um, the Bedford game, the 48-25. I mean, like I, I haven't seen the game. I've seen a little bit of the highlights on social media. Did Donny go into that one completely wrong and trying out Rugby Bedford at Goldington Road? Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me back. I didn't think I'd be having a speaking voice today, so um, that's that's fine. Um, yeah, I don't think Donny underestimated us or overestimated the game. I just think Bedford were really, really good. You know, I, I, I've seen on social media that our fans are calling it the best performance of this season, the best performance of since I've been here. Like, I've been at Bedford for three years, probably. Yes, I think it was really nice for the boys to get one over on Donny. They... They battered us up at um, Castle Park a little bit, and we felt we left a lot, a lot out there in that forty-two all draw against Doncaster. So for that group to come back, to keep fighting, and to put on that performance, particularly with the two and a half thousand crowd again at Goldenton Road, um, it was another special night. Friday night lights are always special at Goldenton Road. Um, but it was a really, really good performance from the team. It just gives us a little bit of bit of a cushion in that uh, battle for the top four. Yeah, well, well surmised and spoken like a true club spokesperson there. Um, get your tickets for the next game. You just missed that out. That was, I'm sure, coming. Richmond, two weeks. <laughs> Richmond, Paddy's Day, Real Ale Fest. Get to Goldenton Road. All right, I'm going to stop you now. Um, any of the other results really stand out to you, Ryan? And uh, how do you think, I mean, looking at the table, it sort of seems you've got your Ealing jersey of runaway, then sort of like a middle top, a middle bottom, and then sadly looking like, like Scottish could be really up against it. Yeah, I don't want to predict anything too much with Scottish because the instant reaction would, would be for me to say, well, Richmond aren't playing well at the moment. The Scottish could catch them, but we're playing Richmond in two in two weeks, so I don't want to give them a team tour. Um, I was really surprised by the Jersey result. Jersey at home, you would always predict a five-point win. Didn't think they'd put 70 points on Caldy. Um, Caldy been playing some really, really good good stuff. Left us with some you know, blood on our nose um, up at their place in January, so I wasn't expecting it to be such a heavy win. Um, Coventry yet beating Scottish Ealing going to Richmond um, Hartbury Nottingham was the only game I thought could have gone either way apart from ourselves and Donny I didn't like Donny came fully loaded I didn't have a clue what was going to happen to Golden Throne. Um, but Hartbury Nottingham um, high scoring Nottingham not in the best form at the moment but I thought they, they'd throw a, throw a few punches which they did Hartbury coming into really good form and then you think well who have Hartbury got next oh it's Bedford at home right brilliant um, so we'll have to travel there, but that'll that'll be a really really good game Friday. Um, two sides in in form and fourth and fifth as well. So um, yeah, a really impressive result um, for Hartbury. That's the one that sticks out for me. 
Yeah, um, certainly was. I think I might have managed to get the scores the wrong way around in my introduction, so it's a good start on my return to the pod. Um, we touched on it, Richmond, um, of course, on the wrong end of a 50-0 defeat to Ealing Trailfinders. Um, John on the show today by someone who will be well-placed maybe to talk about that result. Um and hopefully some other wider championship matters, and I guess general professional rugby matters. Uh, today's guest, the former Oxford University Blue, before having a long analytical career at Bath and Briefly Harlequins, as well as represented England 23 times. Um, Simon Halliday, it's a pleasure to have you on the Championship Clubs podcast. Good morning. Good to be here. Great. Did you um, Have you heard anything back from the results at the weekend as much as... Ealing are in fine fettle and I guess many people's favourite for the league. Normally get a tough game against Richmond, so uh, a 50-0 uh, victory, I guess, they'll have uh, left very few complaints. Yeah, I, I was there and uh, I think it was a little bit unfair on Richmond, actually, because they they had some very strong moments in the game, but um, they, they, they had a few changes, uh, a few injuries as well. So Ealing, I think, just pl- simply played really, really well. And uh, every single chance they they got, they took. Uh, we got, we took. And um, it was, um, and of course, as the second half played out, some of the replacements came on, and you know, we we kept the momentum up. So I think it was a bit of an unfair reflection of, of quite a lot of the game, where Richmond had some good possession and Ealing defence was pretty good. So I, I think um, it was a combination of those two things, really. And and of course, at the end of it. You know, Richmond's squad depth isn't inevitably as as good as ours, and, and that that impacts when you're losing the game already. Certainly, a result to uh, say keep the Trailfinders top of the pile, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about being top of the championship and that sort of end of season running and what may or may not be in a little while. Obviously, made reference to your playing career in the intro, Simon, but of course, off the field, um, a very distinguished uh, career in. In rugby as well, um, much time spent as a chairman of Europe, uh, European Professional Club Rugby and now obviously strategic advisor to Ealing Trailfinders as well as being vice chairman on the uh, on the Championship Clubs Committee. I guess we'll start off by talking, just tell us a little bit about what those two current roles involve and what the sort of mandate is for both and uh, how, it, uh, how it sort of works out day to day. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I finished uh, uh, quite a long spell as chairman of EPCR uh, with combination of a big corporate restructuring where we changed the governance completely and uh, and set up a new eight-year agreement. And that was a natural time, really, to, to stop. I mean, if you can imagine chairing a board that's got six the six nations CEOs and the, the, the three heads of the leagues, and then all the, all the clubs underneath that have all got a view. It's it's full on, you know, and uh, you have to be uh, you have to have your finger on the pulse. Uh, and so I took it pretty much a year out, and um, and and obviously the fact the last role I ever had in England in English rugby was with Isha on the Championship Club Committee uh, when um, we were we were debating the RFU the future. Jeff Irvin, of course, from from Bedford Blues, was the uh, was the chairman of that committee. You know, Bristol was was in the championship in those days. And uh, you know, Isha was trying hard, being one of the largest community clubs in the country, to play up in that rarefied atmosphere. And um, we, we lasted a couple of seasons, but came down and been in the National League since. So it was a kind of coming back to something I already knew 10 years on. And uh, an and Eating Trail Finders um, 
they they call me. I, I know the head of women's rugby there, Giselle Mather, who obviously Ealing have made a huge commitment to women's rugby and um, you know had been appointed as one of the eight or ten now franchises in England, which is a wonderful thing. And uh, um, I I came in to visit and sort of see Ben and just chat through things. And you know he said, "Will you come and just be part of of Ealing Trailfinders?" And I was obviously attracted by the fact that it was a club that done so well over a long, long period of time and uh is clearly still developing and growing so so I said yes and um and it's it's been it's been great to be involved and and of course the probably the bigger thing is to be part of the championship committee that where you know we're at this, these turning points in the game uh, and where professional rugby goes in this country and how we position everything it's loads of people involved in those decision making so I uh, took the place of Sean Justice, who's, who's, who was there previously, and I've uh, been working with Steve Lloyd of Doncaster and um, Ian Connell, the, the independent director, to, to represent the championship in discussions with the RFU and the PRL. So that's really what's been happening over the last number of months. Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, we've had Ben Ward on the show previously. I think a lot of championship fans will see Ealing and sort of come in and, and been a dominant force for a little while, but having spoken to Ben and hearing the stories of the development that's going on, not just with the first team, you referenced the women's team, but also the sort of the Trailfinders Academy down there. It really is a project with many different levers being pulled and it's sort of been, whilst I guess the, the, the first team will earn a lot of the attentions and a lot of the uh, the news rights that will be on the, on the, on the performances of, of the Trailfinders in the championship. There's, there's an awful lot of good work being done down at the sports ground in West London that's um, not just limited to the the success of the first team. I think I think that's a really important point to make, and and I freely admit that I did not realise uh, what was going on down there because I walked in through the gates and I my first thought was wow what what an amazing place you know people had not given me that impression uh, of of what's been developed down. Uh, at Valis Way, and, and I, you know, I've found that out over the period of weeks and months to understand what's going on in the, the mini section, the, in the juniors, the, the academy, the way that's built, linked with Bruno University, the the women's game, and so it's not just about the senior men. You're absolutely right, and um, you know that that's that point often gets overlooked, but that's frankly probably the story in many championship clubs who have got so much going on within the, the the town, the community they operate within. And, you know, Bedford Bedford is a great example of that, for example. You know, and um, I noticed two and a half, three thousand people there again at the weekend. It's, you know, it's I played against Bedford a number of times um, back in the day and uh, never an easy place, that little slope that uh, makes life difficult for you. Um, and, uh, you know, it's in a way that sort of club is the heart and the bedrock of, of rugby in this country so plenty goes on in, in the championship that people don't always know about mm. I completely agree and so when you sat down with, with Ben Ward and Mike Gillian whoever else it was to talk about uh, coming on board and being in, being part of Project Ealing what was the intention what is like let, let, how 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 bold you want to be about it? Was it as simple as Simon? We want you to come in and prove our standing, and we want to be a top tier club. Or is there more to it? What was the discussion about uh, your first initial involvement as a, a strategic advisor? Yeah, I think it, you know it's 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 a really tricky one for the game at large, and, and Ealing in a way is 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 at the heart of that. Not just Ealing, um, I think the entire Championship group, and 
you know, we all don't need to rehearse the, the, the how tricky it's been for professional rugby over the last few years, um, not just in this country, by the way, you know, everywhere you look. And I think the game is, is obviously having to really redefine where it's going with regards to its costs. It's, you know, pandemic had a long and nasty impact on everybody, not just in, in, our, in our personal lives, but certainly for rugby as a sport. You know, in Europe, we play behind clo- our two finals behind closed doors. I mean, you imagine, normally we'd have 70,000 people. It was a huge day for us, and we end up playing with 150 people at Ashton Gate. It was, it was, it, it was been really tricky in the sport world, too. And I think we're all having to look at that. And I think the, the championship, a lot of the work I've been doing um, has been trying to work with the RFU and the PRL and all the championship clubs in terms of the ambitions going forward because things are going to change and you know we have to accept that i think there's certain realities that you have to put into the context of look we know what we love we know what we've had in the past the visions the ambition aspirations we all know that but there's also some harsh commercial realities about what it's going to take to succeed um whatever division you're in whatever league you're in got to try and make sure that everyone's got a pathway to the top of whatever pile they think they're capable of getting to, you know. So I think I think that's been the job. And I think everyone within rugby has to put another hat on, which is we'd all love to see just progression, really realise your ambition. But there are other things at play as well, which which are more practical and more pragmatic and trickier sometimes to deal with. And that's what we've been doing. And I think all of us know that's that's the reality. Yeah. Jumping a few steps forward here, but in your discussions in the role so far, do you feel like there is a consensus of opinion yet? Or are, we, are there still lots of thoughts going in lots of different directions? Is progress being made? Because I think as a rugby fan who no longer is involved in a professional capacity with the game, there's probably frustrations about how the, the professional game in the country seems to be being run and seems to be moving forward. And I think it seems as if there's a lot of different opinions and sort of interests almost colliding at the moment. But is that how it feels inside or do you think that there is? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the we don't want to look back, we want to look forward, but also we've got to understand the context of everything because the game went pro in 94-5 against the background of the RFU saying, well, it's not going professional. So the union didn't accept professionalism when it first started. We knew it was happening in New Zealand. You know, for example, we know, I know, that former All Blacks were going to current All Blacks and saying, sign this contract. We'll never play for the All Blacks again. Well, they signed the contract. I mean, you would. Um, so that, that's, you know, France that embraced it. So it's taken a number of years. And I then joined the RFU in the late 90s to help grow the professional game with from an RFU perspective to sort of, meet the clubs and come up with agreements for release of English qualified players and building the academies. I was involved in that. And we ran the coaches, you know, Clive Woodward and his group, Andy Robinson, reported to us. You know, so you go back to those early days and the first deal's done. It wasn't, if you had a clean sheet of paper, it wouldn't have done it that way necessarily, but that's the way it was done. So we're now, the history is important to understand because so how can the game get out of control? Well, the club owners were, were left to their own devices because no one was prepared to help them. So when you go back to what Nigel Ray's contributed to the game and at the beginning of time, you know, he was left on his own to try and create something that was sustainable. So now to current day, 
you know, we're all wrestling with some of that history and the fact that things will have to change. Um, and so it is things colliding. But but I think if you if you can broaden the context and understand where this come from, then and the championship clubs, you know, it's been difficult to define what their future would be like over the last number of years. You know, it predates me, but I go back 10 years, as you say. But since then, you know, there's all been this big debate about where are the championship clubs going and how can they be supported? And, and I think at least now we know there needs to be some fundamental change. And that's what we're all debating. In fact, there's a call today and there's, there's been meetings with the RFU and the Premiership, you know, by the championship clubs. All the championship clubs are having their say as to how we think the future should look. So the important thing is that people are around the table. No, no one is going to have decisions made and put onto them so anyone who thinks that's happening, that's not. And I've got no axe to grind, you know, in the way. So I, I can reassure anybody that whether you're a National League team, Championship Club team, Premiership, you know, everyone is having their say, which is really important. Yeah, of course. Um, like I say, it sounds conversations are happening and, and, and things are, are being figured out. Um, as you say, you are still quite new to this so you can come to some yeah. championship premiership discussions with a a uh, you know no agenda no uh no Freya to your England no previous skin in the game as such you can come with a sort of fresh thinking we've long on this show sort of tried to champion the position of the league as I guess a development system that's produced countless premiership international players and such and that's where we've argued uh, for anyone who listens <laughs> that the value of the league um is um and like you said there's these conversations happening now between PRL championship RFU um where people need to figure out and understand what uh I guess the value of each entity is the role of each entity um and then you maybe accept some half harsh realities about how they're going to continue to be to operate in a sustainable environment. What what do you think, having come back to the league, obviously from your past experiences with Isha a long, long time ago, the role and the value the championship has is to the English game? Yeah, it's, it, it's I mean, it's been, the question's been asked so much. I've seen, it, sometimes you have to measure these things by the, the, the facts and the evidence. Well, you always should be actually, but you know, rugby creates huge passion and emotion, and uh, you know, there's always there's four types of people. I've always said in rugby: there's, there's the amateur, there's the the administrator, there's the um, the person who put a load of money in has got a right to say things. You know, he's spent money, and then you've got the ex-player who thinks he knows everything about the games he actually played. You know, that's not true, um, but uh, that's that sometimes created some. Poor appointments. I think that's something the coaching appointments of the, the, the past. But the um, if you've got all those people in the room, then you've got to take the best of all of them. And and I think that kind of there's that middling road with the championship. It's got a little bit of everything. But if you look at the facts about the number of players that have gone through the championship system and ended up playing at a much higher level, I've seen the numbers. You know, there's a bit of a contradiction where people say, "Well, is it actually true?" Yes, it is. Absolutely is. And, uh, and not just actually on, on field. I hadn't realised how many referees mm. have refereed through the championship and upwards. I hadn't realised how many coaches have refereed through the championship and upwards. So I think it's a critical um, area of, of expertise and importance in the English game. I'm not sure that's fully accepted because, of course, the people are looking through it from a lens of 
can you be a sustainable professional club? And that's what we're all debating at the moment. And what does it take? So I think we're right in the middle of that. So all the clubs and not just championship clubs, but I suspect the some of the more aspirational national league clubs are going to be asked their view. And also, where do you think you're going? You know, how long is it going to take you, do you think? And how do we, one of the big optical things, Bedford's probably an honourable exception here, is that not enough people walk through the, the gates to watch these matches. But then it's a virtuous or a vicious circle because there's, there's not, there's no real TV, just no TV um, exposure and people don't sometimes see what great rugby they're missing. And I, I know from talking people from Bedford, they've had, you know, a couple of absolutely humdinger matches recently up at their place, which, you know, probably would deserve even more crowd than they've got. And I think ultimately uh, we've got to try and get that back. And that's part of the debate. You know, how do you get that back? How do you grow it from 1,000 to 3,000 to 4,000? Um, and, and that generates revenue, that generates TV interest, that generates sponsorship interest, you know, the virtuous circle. And I think now is is now the time where the uncertainty um, or, or the debate needs to just move on to how do we create that? That was going to be my, uh, my next question. Has there been any progress in that debate? Are there any joined up opinions about how they boost the popularity be it uh, from a, a marketing promotion perspective or from a structural perspective we've seen pieces in rugby media about a, a premiership one and two being a more attractive proposition potentially or free to wear television deals is there anything that feels material in these discussions yet Simon? Yeah it's, it, it is all I mean you literally I've been talking at a time when this debate is actually is live, meetings are taking place to develop, you know, to, to say, right, how, how are we going to get a general uplift in attendances? How are we going to get, how are we going to develop, help clubs develop their own internal organic revenue growth? Um, you know, let's let's look at the catchment area they're in and how do we work better with it? And that, that we've got to get a bit granular about it. And all the clubs need to st- are stepping up to say, here's what we feel, here's what we think we need to keep growing. And because I don't think you can really go into a professional league of any sort without funding. You just can't. I mean, this, the two things don't marry up. I mean, it's 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 why the RFU is having, obviously, its discussion with the Premiership. The PGA is all about funding. Of course, it's about facilities and standards and benchmarks, but... You know, in, in a world where the funding piece or the, the financial position of the Premiership has, has never been more in the spotlight, um, you know, we've all got to make sure as a game that what happens next is is actually going to stand the test of time and not open up, opportunity, you know, the scenarios which we've seen in the last couple of years. And certainly Championship clubs, I think, broadly speaking, are pretty well run and fiscally responsible and all that good stuff. So it's a question of trying to make certain that continues to be the case in a more pressing, challenging environment where the standards need to go up and that everything else needs to improve to try and say bridge gap between championship and premiership, but have a scenario over a period of years where, you know, there is a logical waiting room of clubs who really can exceed to the top level. I mean, look, look at what happened at Twickenham at the weekend. I mean, stunning environment great game of rugby you know that's that's kind of where in a sustainable way the premiership needs to continue to be and championship needs to see that and go wow okay there's something to work towards or prem to i don't know if this is almost 
perhaps for me to say so, but just looking at sort of your two roles and the two organisations, obviously you've got, there's, there's two different ambitions from what I, outwardly looking in, you've got the Championship Clubs Committee and the development of the League of the Whole, and then you've obviously got the role with Ealing. Ealing have for the last, I'd say, five years probably been everybody's second favourite behind the, the, the Premiership t- side at the time. They're the team that's run the relegated premiership side the closest and then of course last year won the league and were denied promotion and of course recently we've seen that the ruling should they be promoted the ground has been deemed not suitable for promotion this time what and i i completely accept everything that you said about growing the game on a sort of a more macro level with the, the whole professional game and the top national league clubs but from an ealing trail finders perspective they're surely I would assume, because if I was in an Ealing Trail Finders role or fan, I would have frustrations. Not that there perhaps needs to be a degree of, I don't know if it's leniency is the right word, but maybe respect shown to the progress that Ealing have made on the pitch and that they probably fully deserve their seat at the top table now and that you know, some some sort of challenge to the status quo should be made in, in their respect. And I'd assume some of that sits under your mandate. Well, yeah, it's it's uh, look, it's this predates me as well, undoubtedly. So I think you know we've always known what has been put in place. So it's not like we're ignorant of it. Question of whether it's right or wrong or able to be challenged um, again is sort of tells you takes you into the realms of whether you want to challenge, take on your union, take on your structure, the structures exists. Um, and, you know, my, my overriding view was that the level of information, and this certainly applies to the trail finders, that has been shared between the championship clubs and the RFU and the premiership has not been good enough. Mm. That's just a fact. And I, I can go back to 2012 where I, I pleaded with um, the head of the premiership then to just go and find out more about championship clubs. Because and, and help them more because that would allow more progression to happen. And I think Ealing's probably been a suffered from that more because but again, top of the programs, you know, what's going on down at Ealing Trail Finders? You know, not everyone knows. And I think this, what I've found has been a, a real gap of information between the very top of the game and what clubs like Ealing Trail Finders are doing. And you can bring Jersey into that as well. You know, what a success story that is. Mm. I mean, geez. And, and how many people know enough about Jersey Rugby Club? in the echelons of power in rugby i don't i don't actually know the answer to that i've question. got to just sorry I, it, it's as someone and i appreciate i have a very uh one-eyed view of this but i guess as someone that's worked in the league and and, and followed it as a fan for a while it, it, it i find it sort of i guess frustrating and almost really surprising to hear that people at the top of the game don't understand or maybe aren't familiar with what's happening in the second flight of the game i think if you were to say compare that to the national game of football and you were to say to the head of the Premier League or the, well, not the EFL because it's a separate, uh, separate body, but the head of the Premier League, that they're not sure what Burnley are up to or they're not sure what Sheffield United or Norwich are up to, it'd be like, well, of course they are. <laughs> but, mm. so I, I guess the fan that, that see, I know that doesn't take away from the, the, I mean, whether or not it's frustrating or not, there's still a job to do to educate the wider game of the work of these clubs. And that's obviously something that I imagine is quite high on, on your uh, things to do as a street via Ealing. But I guess it, it does sound as frustrating to someone that, that it isn't. I think I, yeah, I do. I do think that. And I think certainly 
the weekend, the way the players approach the match, you know, which is the first, was the first league match that's taken, taken place since the ruling. Hmm. And can't give enough credit to the guys. Turned out, absolutely put out a performance to be proud of and really top end of their game, right? as well as I've seen them play for a while, actually. And that takes some doing. As an ex-player, I know what it's like, you know, for, and, you know, I was lucky enough with Bath particularly, but Arthur's too, to win any number of cups and leagues, etc. My God, you know, it absolutely takes everything you've got to do that. And when you've won it, you feel incredibly... You know, you feel pleased for the fans, for the coaches, for your family, for you, for your players, and you know the classic rugby thing. So it, it, it's tough, you know, and I, I don't want to underplay that at all. But I think in terms of trying to just look forward, the information is being shared. You know, we're pitching what we we're about going forward, and um, and making certain that, that 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 is fully reflected, and that is the only thing you can do because. Otherwise, the rearview mirror just becomes a vicious circle of discussion. It doesn't work, you know. And I think coming in fresh means that, so, okay, some things are in place. Some things are just going to stop what you might think is the natural order. But but we've got to we've got to lay out the next five to ten years and make sure that is however much individually you might feel something, and um, you can't let it impact something for the future. And also, I'm representing all the clubs. You know, I spend as much time talking to the Blues as I would do to whatever. So, Eden's in a particular position, but you you do have to just take a deep breath and say, okay, but we've got to get it right for the future. No, whatever else. A very mature approach to it, probably more mature than, than my own. <laughs> but, uh, um, one thing I would say, and I, I feel I have to obviously ask this question, having you on the uh, on the show this week, because um, obviously one thing you could do as well as the education piece of moving forward is decide that if the rules were unfair, that you maybe wanted to play in a different set of them. Of course, there's been the um, the articles in the news, uh, the rugby paper this week and other publications that um, suggesting a potential merger between Ospreys and Ealing. Um, are you at liberty to speak at all about that? Is there any truth in it? Is there, Or is it at this stage, again, just more discussions about options and understanding the wider landscape of what could be possible? I think, I mean, no, I absolutely wouldn't ever discuss something like like that um, in terms of newspaper speculation. I think what I would say is that it, it kind of comes back to said at the beginning. And I had a good view of this in my championship role across Europe, that every single league, every single club within that league has got a particular challenge and, you know, it's been exacerbated by, um, by the financial dynamics and, you know, don't look any further than the English Premiership with Wasps and Worcester and the general state of finance that, you know, the, the position in other countries and, and Wales, it's, it's well advertised. I'm not involved in Welsh rugby at all. I was born in Wales, by the way. But um, the, um, <laughs> and look, I, I learned my rugby down in the valleys of Wales and sometimes in the hospitable areas like King's Home and uh, Bristol and, and whatever. So um, no one likes to see what's... And I suspect coming out of that, people kind of look to potential sort of solutions to that. But I think, you know, first of all, rugby journos must just think it's Christmas time because they get page after page after page of allowances because there's so much to talk about. Uh, and I suppose it's a natural thing to think about. But I've, I've said formally to all fellow clubs, you know, 
Ealing Trailfinders aiming live, to do as best as it could in the English League and get to the top. Ealing's aiming live also is to help championship set of clubs that has been part of for so many years. I mean, one of the oldest clubs in the country, by the way, mm. 1870 or whatever it is, um, to create something that's going to work for the English game. You know, that's prima facie what every English club would do. So, you know, you never rule out all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I mean, it wasn't so long before, you know, Toulon was applying to become a, join the premiership, you know, for example. I mean, I was, I think that happened in my first year as um, chairman. I spent my time having to call Mohamed Al, that's Montpellier, but um, Bujalal. And he said, why not? If I don't get what I want from the French clubs, I'm coming to England. I went, okay, <laughs> good luck with that. Or Mohamed Al to try to buy Gloucester. You know, there's lots of things that, that go on when the pressure's there. But I think for the minute, as I said, my focus is to help the get the best result we can for the second tier of the Premiership. Very interesting. And I get um I, I guess then in terms of the future or, or the immediate future of the, the championship, again I assume these this has been and I think just to your point about rugby journalists having so much to uh you know, there's been so much, I guess, easy clickbaity headlines or easy stories around at the moment. So I think there is a little bit of a vacuum of official information around, which makes speculation all the easier. So if there's if there's nothing sort of like this is what's going to be happening next year, no one's quite sure, no one's coming forward, then you know, if you've got a Twitter following and you've heard half a whisper off an ex player or something, then all of a sudden you can um, you know, you can get yourself a, a headline. Um in terms of sort of next season in the championship, is there a, is the clarity? I know obviously the the wasps discussion. Um, I guess also at the other end of the table, just mentioned it at the start. London Scottish are are starting to look like they're getting cut adrift there at the bottom. Do we know? I mean, assumably, Jersey haven't applied for promotion. If Ealing's grounds unsuitable, I think there's only Doncaster that were said to have a ground suitable to go up, but they're looking particularly with the battering at Golden Tower at the moment like they won't be in the running to go up. Um, and then as I say, what the whole Wasps um situation who don't seem to have sort of a, a, a club or a home at the moment. Um, is there any progress or anything that we can talk about in terms of what the league might look like, how many teams, who will be where at the moment? Yeah, and, and I think I think your your very question tells you the answer really that, that the game and I think twenty three, twenty-four, I've I've said to a few people just, just kind of looking at it as you know, we are in a we're gonna have to suck up whatever comes because there's so many situations that have come our way that you couldn't have predicted. And I think, you know, the Wasp Worcester situation was a calamity for us in the English game. And you know, then it gets mixed up in administrators and what happens to the and, and the fact that the ground is owned by someone else and some you know they get takeovers and who owes what to whom and these are unique situations in the English game. And of course the view that we wanted or everyone naturally wanted was Worcester to survive in some shape or format. It's the people behind these businesses, you know, who who've lost jobs, etc. So terrible to see at a personal level. So the, the view to try and save were was it's obvious. It's a natural, natural desire to save two clubs with great history, particularly was Go back, my God. I mean, how many unbelievably good players? How many cups have they won? Of trophies? They won the founder members of the league and etc. So we couldn't know what was going to happen until uh, that all played out. Uh, and so, uh, and then it's a unique set of circumstances. So I think 
the way that everyone in the game should look at 23-24, nothing's going to be perfect. It just isn't. And there's not much we can do about that. I think that it's deep breath. We can do as much as we can because we're still dealing with post-COVID fallout. You know, the DCMS loans and that wasn't just the Premiership Clubs, it was Championship Clubs too. And so how that's going to work out, how people putting their finances in place goes back to the broader topic of the future and sustainability. So I think 24-25, there, there are two works in progress. What's 24-25 going to look like? And what are we going to have to accept for 23-24? And I say have to accept because it may not be perfect, but it's driven by circumstance and events and the need to construct the future and understand you might have a little bit of compromise for the coming year. And I think the game is, luckily, it's World Cup year. So there's going to be a massive event in France, which is like, you know, from what I can see from Six Nations, like this weekend's going to be something else, isn't it? Um, but we're going to have an incredible tournament there. So I just think just putting a real big picture hat on, let's just be a little bit accepting of the pressure that everyone's under, that decisions are going to be made with everyone being connected, and that is absolutely happening. Anyone who doesn't think that, I'm telling you now, it is, that all those conversations are going on with all the right people. Whether we make the right decisions or not, well, that's a different matter, but uh, I hope for 24, 25 and onwards, for all of not just, we've only talked about the Premiership and the, Arca international game, but but pro game, but but remember, there's a whole series of clubs below who've operated in the top echelons before. You know the Rosslyn parts of this world and Blackheath, and and then you've got um, uh, the the Rams who are doing ever so well this year, and you've got Sale FC just down the road who played in Hay playing Haywood Road where I used to play Sale for Bath. You know that's the top 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 club. So there are lots of aspirational, and you've got to take them into account as well. So I think that's the answer that, that you know, there will be decisions made soon, because there got to be, because you've got issues of relegation and who's going up, down, and what the size of leagues, we're well aware. So there's a role-playing analysis going on, so if we had this number, if we had that number. You know, it wasn't that long ago we thought Worcester would be here, and it's not. So suddenly, you know, you can't just rip up a piece of paper and say, oh, oh, well, we thought that, now what do we do? So there's quite a bit of role-playing right now. And, and that's right. So we're in the middle of that. And I suspect in a shortish number of weeks, you're going to get some hopefully white smoke coming out of the, the chimney and some successful outcomes. But too early to tell because we're right in the middle of it. Hmm. I guess, um, whilst I think you've done a fantastic job of answering all my questions without telling me anything, which is a, a talent in itself. I feel encouraged by the fact that these discussions are going on because I don't, as I say, predate your time perhaps, but I don't know if championship clubs were always in those conversations historically or if the role was as close as it seems to be now. Um, probably my final question to you, Simon, um, and I guess it's quite a um, an abstract one, but what would success look like with it uh, in the in in the short medium term, but for the professional game, what could you if you could sum it up? What would it be? Well, I think I think uh, because I'm sitting here on a Championship Clubs podcast, you know, a fully funded second tier Premiership 
if you like, Prem 2. Because um, I think we're going to move away from calling it the championship. Mm. So I think that's the intention. That's what's being negotiated top down between the Premiership and the uh, the RFU. So I think that's where we need to get to. And I think the we, we all need, everyone's got a job to do here. And I'm a new boy, as I said, um, to actually show, showcase the great things going on um, in the championship, the great pathway that it's been for players to accelerate to the top, the great rugby that is being played week in, week out, the ambition as clubs, you know, the, the, the young players that come through the system uh, and the, and also the links with the communities. You know, we've got to get participation levels back up in this country. And a lot of these clubs from geographically, great rugby heartlands of the country need to play their part in that. And they are. And I think it's showing the, the, the top end of the game. Look, look, look how many children we bring into the game. Look at the women's development, the kids, and all of that. And I think the big task for the championship clubs, get people through the gate. That is something that's obviously, I mean, Ealing's the worst at this in one sense because we don't have a big enough crowds. We've got to get people through the gates. And I think create the virtuous circle, that will happen. And that's that's what I hope, that we end up with a fully funded professional second tier that can grow and develop and be ambitious and knock on the door of the Premiership. So I think if, if we were to achieve all that, that definition of success certainly rings true with myself and I'm sure to many rugby fans listening to this. Sam, thank you very much for the time. That's been a very insightful and interesting podcast. And uh, yeah, I wish you every success. I'm really excited to see what the outcomes are of these uh, these discussions in the next few weeks and months. Thanks so much for your time. I've enjoyed it. Cheers, Mike. That was the Championship Clubs podcast. Be sure to come back in a fortnight's time and follow us on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. 